We're going to begin today with a story and then a question. The story comes from my elementary school days, both third grade and fourth grade. As many of you know, I love to read, and my favorite genre of reading are biographies, and that's been true all my life, from when I was very, very young. So it's not surprising that in both third grade and fourth grade, highlights for me was that at the elementary school I attended, both the third graders and the fourth graders celebrated once a year what we called biography night. And that was where every student chose a historical figure, and they researched them, and they wrote a paper on them, and then on biography night, it all culminated that we dressed up as the historical figure we had studied, and then made a presentation to the other students and to the parents. As a third grader, when I entered into this, I took it really seriously. Who did I want to study? Who did I want to, above anyone else, look at? And like a good third grader probably would, I chose Davy Crockett. Nobody in my mind represented what I wanted to be more than Davy Crockett. And the image before you is really what I thought I was going to embody as I got older. And that has turned out so, so well. Fourth grade rolled around, and there was a week in school where I was sick for a number of days, and my mom went to pick up homework for me, and when she brought it home, this pile of homework for one of the school days I had missed, she let me know that in the days that I had been gone, the fourth grade students had chosen their figures for biography night. I was crushed. I was like, well, what does this mean for me? She said, well, your fourth grade teacher assigned you a person for biography night. Winston Churchill. I had no idea who that was. So they pulled out this picture. Now, this is not a statement about Churchill's value in history, but for a fourth grader at the time, when you go and downshift from Davy Crockett to Winston Churchill, it is a deeply disappointing experience. And ever since then, there's been this little part of me, even as I get older, that when I hear the name Winston Churchill, there's this little fourth grader in me that's like, yeah, I don't really like him. I kind of feel disappointed. That's the story. I want you to hold on to it for a minute. Now, the question that I'd like you to consider. What do the following have in common? Denominations, clothes in a closet, books in a library, music, playlists. What do these have in common? On the surface, nothing. But what each of them are is an example of how it is that you and I in our lives organize ourselves and organize our world on a daily basis. For example, we don't just have uh, hundreds of churches in Austin. We have Presbyterian and Lutheran and Catholic and Greek Orthodox and Russian Orthodox and Ethiopian Orthodox. And the way that we talk about these is that we differentiate them and categorize them and organize them, not on what they have in common, but on what they are and how they are different. Our clothes in a closet are organized together. They're not just all thrown in necessarily. Books in a library have an organization of how certain genres are different from other genres so that we can navigate our way through the library and find our way around. Or the classic playlist for classical music on my phone is different than the classic rock playlist. It's all music, but I organize it and categorize it based on how they're different and unique from each other. We do this with scripture, friends. We do this with the Bible itself. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. When Jesus came in, in the book of Matthew, in the first chapter, um, the first chapter of the New Testament, Jesus didn't say, this is the New Testament. 
But rather, we as Christians see that the coming of Jesus is the defining moment in history, and therefore we categorize Scripture by the Old Testament being before Jesus and the New Testament being the story of Jesus and the story of the church after Jesus. It's not that it's not all Scripture, it is, but we categorize it based on how it's different. This isn't a good thing or a bad thing. It's just how our brains work. But this morning, I want us to realize how often we live our lives this way, how often our, naturally our brains work this way, and to see it that we make the choice to do this every day. It's such a natural choice. We just see it as how we live, but we make choices all the time of what's where and who's where and where are we uh, in relation to that or to them or to they. How are things separated by how they're different from each other? And we see this human behavior played out in the pages of Scripture itself, and this is what Paul is addressing here in Ephesians chapter 2. One of the most common ways we see people separated and defined based on categories that make them different, it's found throughout the scriptures, are through the terms Jewish and Gentile. Paul writes about this here, and he says that we have to understand that the term Jewish were the people who were part of God's covenant. They were the descendants of Abraham. They were the ones that God said, I am going to be your people, and you will be my God. The goodness of God and God's grace had chosen them. Gentiles, on the other hand, were still people, but they were anybody who wasn't Jewish, Didn't matter what nationality you were. Didn't matter how old you were. If you weren't Jewish, you were a Gentile. Those were the two categories. In the passage that we've read this morning, the Apostle Paul describes it as a dividing wall between people. And this term, a dividing wall, wasn't just something that he came up with himself. This is an image of the temple in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus and the time of Paul. You'll see that the temple grounds were enormous, but most of the temple grounds were this gigantic open courtyard. This was known as the courtyard for the Gentiles. This is where the Gentiles, any non-Jews, could go and to gather on the temple mount. The temple itself was this kind of island of buildings where the Holy of Holies was right in the center of the courtyard. And the wall that surrounded that little island of buildings was known as the dividing wall. No Gentile could go inside the dividing wall. It literally separated who could get closer to God from those who had a barrier between them and God. And so you can imagine how revolutionary it was when the readers of Ephesians first heard Paul proclaim, for he, Jesus, is our peace in his flesh He has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He's broken down the barriers, the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. I wonder in this time of protests, of demonstrations, of seeking the declaration that black lives matter, if that is a message that we need to hear and hear again today, that there is no dividing wall, no hierarchy, no upper echelon of those who are closer to God than anyone else, that in Jesus, these walls have been eradicated. And that brings me back to Brother Winston Churchill. 
Winston Churchill was indeed the prime minister of Great Britain during World War II, but one of the things that I've read recently about Churchill is that he was unique among British politicians because he had the ability to form friendships with folks of different political parties. You see, the British political system at Churchill's time was in many ways like ours. There were political parties that debated, that fought, that uh, didn't like each other, that uh, held up legislation, that promoted certain legislation, and those groups were very tribal. They, they, they sat together, they met together, they ate together, they strategized together against the other side. And part of what was different about Churchill is that while he was one of the great debaters for decades in the House of Commons for his political party, deep abiding beliefs, that he was different from most others because over the years he also developed deep and abiding friendships with people in the other political parties. And the net result of it was lots of people didn't trust him. They didn't trust how it was that you could uh, see these walls that say who's on the inside and who's on the outside and just walk between them like you don't have a care in the world. That you could debate someone on the floor of the House of Commons with passion and then go to dinner with them for three hours afterwards and talk about your lives and your families and your hopes and your dreams. It wasn't that it led a new way of being. He wasn't trusted by the opposition and for years he wasn't trusted by the members of his own party some of whom believed he was a spy leaking information at those dinners to the other side. Churchill was asked the question once, how in the world can you have these friendships with people who are primarily our opponents? And Churchill responded by saying, I don't see them primarily as our opponents. I see them as fellow citizens with whom I disagree. Churchill understood that if all we are are people with different viewpoints, if all we are are people who live in the categories of us and them and you're here and I'm here and we stay defined only by our differences, that the only net result of that is that we either tear the social fabric apart or one system or ideology has to dominate the others and normalize what life is supposed to look like. But rather there has to be a common backdrop so that this diversity can allow us to grow and learn from each other. What the Apostle Paul is writing here about Jesus is that this dividing wall, this natural way we live of who is what and where are they and how do they relate to us and how do they relate to God and how do we create these categories based upon what makes me different from you is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that way of being, that that way of thinking about, which all of us do, all of us do, has been knocked down by Jesus. But we are struggling. We are struggling in our world today to know what to unify around. We are struggling in our nation today to know how to unify. Because the old things that we used to unify around, we realized only worked for certain people. And there were voices that were left out or, or silenced. We need to understand that potentially the ways that we can move forward as a society is not by coming up with a newer or better set of doctrine that then comes to dominate other doctrine. But that what Paul is suggesting for people of faith is that we need to understand that what unifies us isn't a set of beliefs, but it's a person. A person who lived in the Middle East 2,000 years ago. A person named Jesus. 
And that it is in that person and in the relationship with him and in the community that he forms that we become family and are bonded with one another as one common people. We are crying out to be seen as one common people. People are yearning for that today. And Paul is saying that that unity is found in our relationship to that person of Jesus and therefore to each other. Now, you might be sitting there going, no, religion is the last thing that can unify us. And I'm not talking about us unifying around a set of doctrine or principles. I'm talking about unifying around a person, a person who declares that all of us are loved, that all of us are equal, that there is no longer any barrier or upper echelon of who more resembles God or the way of God, but that all humanity is seen as one, that all of us, Paul writes here, are image bearers of God carrying something sacred in us, something holy in us, something beautiful. And if you sit there and go, but I don't know that I even believe in that doctrine or that it's true. God's declaring how holy and wondrous you are is not dependent on even if you believe it or not. You are loved. All are loved. All are equal in the eyes of God. The the walls that divide and separate us that we as human beings create has been knocked down. There are no more dividing walls. God declares that no matter who you are or what your skin color is or what ethnicity you, you, you are blessed with or, 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 or what you, how you vote or what language you spoke growing up, that you are my brother, that you are my sister, that we are one family. And if the thousands of people in the covenant orbit this day and this week declared that to be true and celebrated that and treated all with whom we come into contact as image bearers of the divine, then I believe that we would shine like stars in this time, drawing others into this beautiful relationship as well. And that the rich diversity of our world that God has created would not tear us apart. But as one common people, we could learn from each other, grow from each other, and all more fully live as the men and women that God intended us to be. May it be so. On earth as it is in heaven. Amen.